Oh, the depths of riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are Your judgments and how inscrutable are Your ways. For no one has known the mind of the Lord. No one has been able to even be His counselor or given a gift to Him that that He might be repaid. For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To You, our God, be glory forever and ever. As we come to this this passage in Romans chapter 11, uh, Paul indeed is um, unfurling before us the, the mind of God and Your plans. And so it stands to reason that there are going to be things that are going to be difficult for us to wrap our minds around. So I pray that Your Spirit would be here and that uh, He would help us uh, in this uh, particular passage of Scripture. Lord, we pray that uh, even as we might not fully understand um, this passage and everything taught in it, we pray that You would keep us um, from error and uh, help us most of all to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus Christ. We ask in His name. Amen. You know, I've said before many times um, that uh, when I get to heaven, one of the first questions that I'm going to have, uh, I'm going to direct to the Apostle Paul. And I'm going to ask him, Paul, what did you mean in Romans chapter 11? Uh, This is a difficult chapter to understand. In fact, some of the commentators that I respect most have been on all sides of every issue. <laughs> They've changed their views several different times. And uh, so I say that because I am not going to presume that I have all the answers or even that I have all correct answers uh, regarding the meaning of this chapter. And frankly, when it's all said and done, the things that Paul is teaching in this passage are of secondary importance when compared to the essentials of the Christian faith. So if we uh, do not have an adequate understanding of Romans 11, it's not going to hinder us in our walk with Jesus Christ. It's not going to hinder us in our service for Him. And furthermore, Romans chapter 11 is about what God is doing. He is going to carry out His plans that He outlines here in Romans chapter 11, whether we understand uh, His plans or not. Now, if this is the case, you might be saying to yourself, well, this chapter is only of secondary importance and is difficult to understand, then why don't we just skip this chapter and go on to chapter 12? Well, there are many reasons why that would be a bad idea. Uh, I'm only going to give two reasons why that would be a bad idea. First, for something to be of secondary importance means that it is of importance, even if it is only secondarily important. And then second, there are many beneficial truths here in this passage that we don't want to miss. So we're going to examine this passage, but we're going to do it from a bit of an unusual standpoint. 
we're going to look at some of the common theological assumptions that are addressed in this passage. And we're going to see that some of our theological assumptions might not hold water when, it, when examined in the light of Scripture. So, a little bit different, we're going to look at ways that this passage, um, that people use this passage in a wrong fashion as a foil against which we will look and, uh, and see the beneficial truths that are contained herein. Um, so the first theological assumption that, uh, that we're going to examine this morning is the notion that ethnic Jews no longer have a place in the plan of God. You know, I've noticed that this idea among some Reformed theologians. They conceive of the New Testament church as substituting itself for the Jewish Old Testament church in such a way that ethnic Jews have become irrelevant to God. But, but this passage, in fact, very, verse 1, points to the error of that theological assumption. When Paul asks if God has rejected His people, he's speaking of His covenant people, ethnic Jews. And so Paul says most emphatically that God has not rejected His people, that God has not rejected ethnic Jews. And Paul says... Um, Paul points to himself as proof positive that God has not finally rejected His people. So look at verse 1. Paul says, I ask then, has God rejected His people? And he gives the strongest no possible. In the Greek it's meganoita. And it means by no means. And to read it... To, to read it properly, you'd have to read it with the exclamation point. Absolutely not. No way, no how. God has not uh, rejected His people. And then He says, For I Myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not finally rejected His people. You know, even though we might struggle with the specific meaning of verse of, of Romans 11, it is clear in this chapter and throughout, frankly, continuing world history that God is carrying forth His plans for ethnic Jews. He has not kicked them to the side. They have not been um, become important to God. Now, in saying that. I should say that I firmly believe there is a relationship between Israel and the church. In fact, it's an organic relationship. The idea that the church has been uh, has replaced Israel does not pass biblical muster. Uh, rather, according to Paul, the church has not replaced the old people of God um, called Israel. Rather what has happened is we have been engrafted into them. We've been engrafted into their number. In fact, we can peek ahead to next week's passage. Just look at verse 17 in uh, chapter 11. Paul says, But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive tree, talking about Gentiles being the wild olive shoot, 
um, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. In other words, the New Testament church has not replaced Israel. Rather, we are organically connected to Israel. Or listen to Ephesians 2, 10-13. Paul says, Remember that at that time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that at, at that time, that you at that time were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenant of promise. But having and having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ, you who once were far off, the Gentiles, we were far off, but now we've been brought near. We haven't replaced, rather we have been brought near to um, through the blood of Christ. In Christ, we were brought near to the commonwealth of Israel. We are no longer strangers to the covenants of promise. There is no substitution of Israel for the church. We are organically connected. You know, this is very important for how we think of ethnic Jews. There is a lot of anti-Semitism in our world right now. Uh, Many people, even many nations, feel justified in expressing hatred or strong prejudice against the Jews. I just saw an article as I was glancing through yesterday. wasn't particularly looking for it, but, but there was an article that just popped up about uh, the, the, the deep levels of, of, um, of hatred toward Jews that is within the United Nations. There's just a lot of anti-Semitism um, through the um, in the nations of the world, you know, I, I grew up um, wondering how in the world did the Holocaust take place? How could one nation, um, the the Germany, so hate the Jews that they would be wanting to exterminate them from the face of the earth? And then, as I became a little bit more of a student of history, I realized that it wasn't just in Germany, that it was more widespread through Europe, and it was even more um, uh, wider than just Europe. And then there were the Muslim nations that hated uh, the Jews, and and there were even um, strains of this in America, and we see it even in our own day and age. No one is justified in um, in hated or being prejudiced against the Jews, especially Christians. We are organically connected to the Jewish people. If we were to continue reading in Ephesians 2, the church is built upon the foundation of the prophets and the apostles. We are therefore called to love them. In fact, we are called to pray for their conversion, to pray for their protection, to pray for their blessing. And so, this theological assumption that is sometimes made that uh, there is no future for the Jews, it just doesn't pass biblical muster. Now, there's a second 
theological assumption that I want to examine here. And that is that God chooses His elect by looking into the future. Many point to verse 2 here in our passage, and they see the word foreknew. And in their minds, they think, well, God made His choice in election by looking into the future, by seeing the choice that a person would make, and uh, then backfilled His election by the choices that that they would make. So look at verse 2. God has not rejected His people whom He foreknew. Do you not know what the Scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? And and then Paul gives uh, the rest of that illustration of uh, from Elijah in verses 3 through 5. But I really want to focus on this verse 2 and on this word foreknew because it's taken as proof positive that God looked into the future to see what decisions we would make and whether we would choose Christ or reject. And then God made His choices based on the foreknowledge of what we do because of this word foreknow or foreknew. But a close reading of verse 2 points to the error of that theological assumption. The foreknowledge in verse 2 does not point to the choices people will make, but rather it points to the persons themselves. God has has not rejected, or it says here in verse 2, God has not rejected His people whom He foreknew. It's not what God foreknew in terms of their actions. It's whom He foreknew. God had His elect Jews in His heart from eternity past. He loved them before they were even a race of people. And verse 5 confirms this. Verse 5 doesn't talk about God making His choice based on decisions that they would make later in the future. Rather, His decision is based on His grace alone. Look at verse 5. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. It's all of God's grace. His choice is unconditional. Because if it was conditioned on us, none of us would ever choose God. We would all be lost. We would be born as spiritually dead. We would live as spiritually dead. And we would die in our sins without ever choosing God. If anybody would be able to choose God for themselves, It would be the Israelites. We see them. They earnestly sought a righteousness. But because they were dead in their sins, they sought a righteousness in themselves rather than the righteousness that comes by faith, as we saw in Romans chapter 10 several times over the last couple of weeks. The determining factor in whether we belong to God is God. He chooses based on His grace alone. You're saying, well, how does all this work? Well, here's what the dynamic looks like. In eternity past, God chose to set His love on a people for Himself. Before the world was even created, He had decided, I'm going to set my love upon this particular people. 
And this particular people were not particularly numerous. They were not particularly righteous. In fact, the one word that God uses over and over again to describe the, uh, the Israelite people is the word rebellious. Uh, sometimes that word rebellious is translated stiff-necked. We could say hard-headed, hard-hearted. And then from within this rebellious people, He chose a small remnant, a small subset of these people to be His elect. That's what He's saying here in verses um, 2 through 5. So uh, let me just read these, well, 2 through 6. God has not rejected His people whom He foreknew, in other words, whom He foreloved, we could say. Do you not know what the Scripture says of Elijah, how he appealed to God against Israel. Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. Elijah was thinking he was the only one, and God says, no, I've reserved others for myself. Verse 4, but what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. And if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. So Paul says in verse 5 that this remnant is chosen by grace. And this is very important because if the Jews... um, if the Jews' righteousness, if their righteousness was based on their works or based on their goodness, then it would no longer be by grace. And they would, no, they would not be saved. But it is by grace to secure the freeness of our salvation. This dynamic of being chosen by God applies to us Gentiles as well. In eternity past, not only did God choose elect Israelites for Himself, He also chose Gentiles for Himself. How does it go in Ephesians verses 4 and 5? For He chose us in Him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in His sight. In love, He predestined us to be adopted as His sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with His pleasure and His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, which He has freely given us in the one He loves. See? God chose Jews for Himself by His grace. He has chosen Gentiles for Himself by His grace. Unconditionally, based on nothing in ourselves, what we would do or who we would be, but only according to His sovereignty and free grace. You know, it's pretty awesome when you think about that. Even before God created the world, God loved you. As He created the world and as He unfurled history year by year, decade by decade, century by century, millennia by millennia, you were on His heart and upon His affections. All that time. You, you did not enter into His brain the moment you were born or conceived. No, from eternity past, you were in His heart. He was loving you. You know, and you stop, you take a step back. 
uh, your descendants that um, were born ahead of you, the generations ahead of you, were part of God's plan to bring you into existence because He loved you from eternity past. He brought about every condition for you to be born with the, the specific purpose that He could pour out His love and His grace upon you. And in your present life, wherever you are right now in all your circumstances, if you belong to Jesus, you can know that if He had you in eternity past in His heart, then He will keep you for Himself during your short life here on earth. Nothing under all creation, neither death nor life, neither angels nor principalities, neither height nor depth, width or breadth, nothing is able to separate you from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So that's the second theological assumption that people will make. That they see the word foreknow and think that God had to look into the future to make His choices of who would be His elect. No, it is by His grace alone. There's a third theological assumption that we're going to look at uh, and that is that Romans 11 is only about the future. You know, I know that um, none of the eschatological views, and that's a big theological term that simply means biblical theories of the end times, um, none of these eschatological views would say that Romans 11 is only exclusively about the future. But sometimes one can get that impression by listening to the debates about this chapter. In fact, I used to own this commentary. It was the worst commentary ever written, I would, I would guess. Um, and it was written on the book of Romans. And you would turn from the end of Romans 8, and the next page was Romans chapter 12. And you'd look... Where are the rest of these pages? Where's Romans 9 through 11? And you'd look and see if there was any pages torn or missing. No. In fact, the page numbers were sequential. You know, um, page 540 would be the end of Romans 8. Page 541 would be the beginning of Romans 12. And um, I, I used to, to use this commentary um, like I'd pass it out in Sunday school class. Hey, will you tell me what this commentator says in Romans chapter 10 and watch him struggle, struggle to try and find Romans 10? Uh, but what, hap- what the author was doing here was he said that, well, Romans 9 through 11 talks about a time when the Jews will become uh, to faith in God at a later point in the future. So because it's talking about Jews and it's talking about a time in the future then we don't need a commentary on it. So he just left it out of his commentary. I think what he was really doing is he did not appreciate or believe in the sovereignty of God and salvation. So I think he was using that as an excuse to try and get around Romans chapter 9. Uh, Charles Spurgeon, uh, was in his commenting on commentaries, uh, he had a little comment. There was a commentary that he listed, and he would give how good the commentary, how bad the commentary was. And the only thing he said about this commentary was, when would the Arminians learn to leave the book of Romans alone? (laughs) That's all he said. 
So, um, but Paul makes it clear that at least in verses 1 through 16, our passage for this morning, that Paul is speaking of the present way, the way in which God was dealing with the Jews then in Paul's day and in our day. Uh, the way he's dealing with the Jews and Gentiles. In fact, the only verse in our passage that speaks of the future is the last part of verse 12, where it says, um, how much will their future inclusion mean? And we'll talk about that a little bit next week. But uh, here he's talking about the way, the present way that God deals with Jews and Gentiles. Now you will remember that the purpose of Romans 9-11 through 11 is to demonstrate that God is faithful to Israel that He is faithful to His covenant people. So in Romans 11, verses 11 through 16, Paul continues this purpose by stating that God's rejecting, rejection of the majority of Israelites is not permanent. There's a hardening that will persist, but that hardening will not be permanent. And I just want you to look at verses 13 and 14. Paul did not say, well, all this is only in the future and has no bearing on, on his ministry because the Jews are experiencing God's judgment. He doesn't, he doesn't say that at all. Rather, he said that his ministry, Paul's ministry, in his ministry, he was looking for Jews to come to Jesus Christ. That was central to his whole ministry to the Gentiles. In other words, Paul wanted to have an abundantly fruitful ministry among the Gentiles so that the Jews would be moved to jealousy and want what the Gentiles were receiving. Paul's ministry to the Gentiles looked beyond the Gentiles. What, Paul, what drove Paul in his missionary endeavors was his love for his, his fellow Jews. Listen to verses 13 and 14. Now I am speaking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. See, Paul wanted the Jews to see the changed lives of the Gentiles. He wanted the Jews to see the love for Christ and the love for each other that the Gentile Christians were, were demonstrating. He wanted the Jews to see the faith of the Gentiles even in the face of persecution and suffering. And he wanted the Jews to say, I want what those Gentiles have. I think this has great bearing on us and how we conduct our um, ministry here at Westminster. We are a congregation that God calls to demonstrate and reveal the love, grace, and glory of God in our lives and in our relationships with each other. We are to display the reality of the presence of God in our lives through our sacrificial service, through our unrelenting love for others, through our faithful obedience, through our, um, our trust in God even while we are suffering. And we are to so live our lives as children of God that the people who do not know Jesus Christ will be driven to say, I want what these people at Westminster Presbyterian have. My last point is going to be quick, and that is, I hope we've sharpened up our theology a little bit this morning. 
And as I bring this sermon to a close, I want to direct your attention to verses 7 through 10. Because in verses 7 through 10, Paul says what he said previously, Israel sought righteousness by works rather than by faith. And they were so unwilling to trust God that God finally hardened them. It was the same method we saw God use in Romans chapter 1. The, the, the uh, Gentiles so wanted to worship false gods that God gave them over to worshiping uh, false gods. And so the Israelites so steadfastly refused God that finally God gave them over to what they wanted. Listen to verses 7 through 10. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it was written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see, ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. So the last theological assumption we're going to examine is the notion that fallen man has a free will to do whatever he wishes, whenever he wishes. But in these verses, it is clear that God is the Lord over the will. If verses 7 through 10 say anything, it says that God has every right to harden a person's heart so that it becomes impossible for them to have faith in spite of even the clear proclamation of the Gospel. And so my final word this morning is to give to you the warning from this passage that if any of you are here this morning and are refusing to respond to the Gospel, you're in a dangerous spot. In fact, it could be too late for you. God may have hardened your heart irrevocably. The good news is you'll never know whether He's hardened your heart irrevocably until and unless you die without the Lord Jesus Christ. And so my uh, call to you is for you to trust the Lord Jesus Christ now. Don't harden your heart because God is the one who is the Lord over the will. And you will freely choose to reject Him. You won't be crying out, God, I want to to know You, but You won't let me know. You will be freely rejecting Him. But it will be because God has given you over in in your will to hard-heartedness, to blindness regarding spiritual things. Your Your back will be bent forever against the Gospel of God. But if you're here this morning and you don't know the Lord Jesus and you're saying, but God, I want to know You. Well, that's also God being the Lord of the will. Opening your blind eyes. Quickening your dead heart. Straightening your 
um, your backwards back and turning you to Himself. So, I urge you, come to the Lord Jesus Christ right now. Don't reject Him. Because it is a solemn thing to remember that the Lord alone is the Lord of the will. The encouraging part is that He loved sinners so much that He sent His only begotten Son here into this world to take on flesh in order that He could be the perfect substitute for our sins so that He could take our sins and be sin for us in our place there on the cross. So come to Him. Trust in Him. Do not reject Him any longer. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this passage of Scripture. Father, we, we barely even touched upon the fact that this is an outline of Your plan and Your will. We thank You for it. Help us as we look forward to next week and seeing the second half of this chapter to understand this passage. In the meantime, Lord, renew our faith and our trust in You. We ask in Jesus' name, Amen.